Lord, help us today as we humble ourselves before your word that we would be teachable, that we would be humble, that we would uh, desire, Lord, for you to reshape us according to your word. And Lord, that you would do that for your glory. And allow me as your messenger simply to be your mouthpiece and to glorify your name through the preaching of your word. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The book of Acts begins with Christ's commission to his apostles. And this is what he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, if you've been with us on this journey, you know this verse. We've quoted it many times, and it lays out the structure of the book. But this commission is also a promise that drives the apostles to fulfill their ministry. Just notice again what it says. You will receive power. You will be my witnesses. So as the apostles embrace their mission, they press on in their ministry knowing that Christ has promised them power through the Holy Spirit and that their witness will spread out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And this promise then drives the events that are taking place in the book of Acts. So in Acts chapter 1 through 7, we have primarily the ministry or the spread of the word in Jerusalem and its regions. In Acts 8 through 12, it's primarily focused on Judea and Samaria. And then in Acts 13, all the way here to chapter 28, it is the, the ministry of the word of God. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is going out to the end of the earth, which is to the Gentiles, not necessarily or specifically to the Jews. Now, in the last few chapters, Jesus has refined his promise to Paul, saying this, and this is Acts 23, 11, as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And here in chapter 28, we see the fulfillment of that promise. We find it in verse 14. And so we came to Rome. But it hasn't come without difficulty. In 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28, Paul lays out a long list of ways he suffered while serving Christ as an apostle. You might want to turn there and just note what he says. 2 Corinthians 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles, uh, in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and on he goes. And we see in that passage 
a lot of suffering, a lot of danger, and a lot of shipwrecks. Now, to be, I want to say, precise in our understanding of what has just taken place in chapter 27, 2 Corinthians was written before that. So the shipwreck that we see in chapter 27 is the fourth shipwreck he has been on. How would you like that to be your record of events? Well, friends, if the song Amazing Grace had been written in Paul's day, he would have no problem singing the third stanza that says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Paul had been through many dangerous toils and snares, but he was heading to the place that would be ultimately his place of execution. And so John Newton has his pulse on the, the ways that God works. His grace is at work in Paul's life through all of his suffering. But at the same time, he would bring him safely to that final destination, ultimately to heaven. And friends, and that might be the reason why we love that song, Amazing Grace. Because it gives us the reality of what we're going through, but it also connects us to the promise of heaven. And so this morning, I want to impress upon you this truth that is evident in our passage. This is the proposition. The grace of God is always at work for us as he sovereignly fulfills his promises to us. Let me just say that one more time. The grace of God is always at work for us as he sovereignly fulfills his promises to us. In other words, in chapter 27, while there's this, this storm and shipwreck, God's grace had not been removed. His grace is still present. And now as we go into chapter 28, we're going to see three evidences of grace while Paul continues his journey. The first evidence I'm calling the grace of kindness. Now after the traumatic three weeks of being driven by the hurricane, Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus are shipwrecked with another 273 passengers on a reef just off the shore of an island. Just as God had promised, in chapter 27, verse 22. And they either swim to shore, or they find some cargo to, to climb onto and float to shore, or they find a bit of the boat and they float to shore. And Luke summarizes God's sovereign provision of the people here in verse 1. Notice what he says. We were brought safely through. It's quite a statement, isn't it? Of all they had gone through. Can you imagine... Southwest Airlines using the slogan, we will bring you safely through. Well, it sounds good, but in this context, I don't think we would be happy with the service. We almost died does not equal we brought you safely through. But it's a reminder here, friends, 
of God's providential care in keeping his promises to Paul and all on that ship, God brought them safely through to shore just as he had promised. And when they arrived, they learned that the island was called Malta. Now, that may not be significant necessarily, but the people of Malta are primarily Phoenician people, and the name Malta means place of refuge. Malta, this island out in the middle of nowhere, was the destination for Paul and his companions on this ship, not even knowing it, and they find themselves at this place of refuge now. So putting it all together so far, we get the idea that God had brought them safely through to a place of refuge. And for the next three winter months, they would stay on this island of refuge, isolated in the middle of the Mediterranean Ocean until it was safe to journey again to Rome. This is all part of God's grace, isn't it? But I want you to notice next an unusual kindness. Now, what would it be like for 276 passengers to wash up on the shore, sopping wet, tired, beleaguered from the harshness of the journey? What would they encounter? How would they survive? What would they go through? What would happen to them next? A lot of questions, I'm sure, they were thinking, they were asking, wondering what would happen after this shipwreck. Well, they're thankful that they're alive. Now, rather than be killed by the inhabitants of the island, which could happen, or take it as slaves, the native people showed them unusual kindness. They rallied together to build a fire to keep the people warm and to dry off their clothes. They welcomed the ragged and depleted people and treated them with an unusual kindness. Now, the expression native people kind of might conjure up in you like trips to Disneyland where you see those people at the jungle ride, you know, kind of, you know, bouncing up and died. I think they changed it. But the word native people here in English is actually one word in the Greek, and it's the word barbaroi, from which we get the word barbarian. Now, that isn't helpful for us either, because in our context, when we think about a barbarian, we think of someone who is a savage, uneducated brute, the kind of people who ravage and take advantage of others. But in, in, in Paul's day, when, or when Luke is writing this, a barbarian is simply someone who did not speak Greek or Latin. They spoke another tongue. So when these people see the shipwreck and hundreds of people coming on shore, they mobilize together to welcome the people and do what they can to help them get warm. It was an unusual kindness. Why would these people respond with such unusual kindness? Well, let's consider this. The Apostle Paul actually gives us the answer in Romans chapter 2 and verses 14 on. He says this, for when Gentiles, you've got to follow his logic here, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves in that they show the work of the law written on their hearts. Let me explain that. The point here is that God has written 
certain laws, certain attitudes, certain beliefs, certain ideologies into the heart of man, regardless of his ethnicity, regardless of his religion, regardless of where he is. So there's some things that we just naturally are offended at or we do. For example, we see children being abused by adults. We say, that's not right. You don't have to have a Bible to have an understanding that that's not right. You see a woman being mishandled by men. We naturally and rightfully want to go to her aid. Why? Because it's written on our hearts. If there's a disaster, if there's an accident or some devastation that happens near us and we can help, we try to come to people's aid. Why? Because that is what is written on our hearts. So friends, when, you, when these people saw all these people you know, washing up on shore, they're not hateful, they're welcoming, and they show an unusual kindness, and they bring them to shore, and they make these big fires so that they can all dry off and get warm. But as believers, friends, we want to rise above what we might call that natural kindness, and to put on the spiritual fruit of kindness, which perseveres in kindness even when others, or even when they are being reviled. See, kindness is not something you give as a Christian simply because someone else gave to you. You do it for the glory of God. You go above and beyond and say, I am going to be kind. Are you a kind person? Are you willing to drop what you're doing to help others who are in need? When you're sopping wet and when you're exhausted and when you're traumatized and someone helps you get warm and dry, it really is an unusual kindness. It's an unexpected kindness. But then notice third here, a strange witness, because what happens next is really kind of unusual and strange. While Paul, in humility, joins others to gather more sticks and put them on the fire, a venomous snake here, identified as a viper, apparently that has been lethargic from the cold, is, in a sense, woken up by the fire and reacts and in reacting, bites him on the hand. And the native people, they're watching. And we need to remember that these barbarians had no prior knowledge of Paul. All they see are these people that are washed up to the shore, and likely Paul is still being shadowed by a soldier or some soldiers. And so they might think to themselves, who is this person? And when they see the snake hanging from his hand, they respond in the way so many pagan people respond to explain human suffering. Notice what it says, verse 4. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, notice it's capitalized there, has not allowed him to live. They conclude that as a murderer, he may have been fortunate to get to shore and still be alive, but you can't outrun Lady Justice. 
As that viper bites him, they're now expecting for him to start to, you know, blow up, so to speak, and die. But friends, this is the kind of thinking that many people have, isn't it? If you are experiencing bad things, it must be because you have done something bad, some sin, to deserve it. If you're experiencing blessing, it must be because you are doing things right. Or to put it differently, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. And in their thinking, the fact that Paul had been bitten by a viper is evidence that he deserved what was coming to him. But friends, that is not God's way, is it? And certainly God wants us to be sure that we understand that that's not his way because he gives us 42 chapters in the Old Testament to debunk that kind of thinking, and it's the book of Job. Some of you were here when we went through the book of Job. And this is what his friends were saying. You can't be innocent, Job. Something, you must have had something to deserve this. And then Jesus deals with this same issue in John 9, when he heals the blind man and the disciples ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? It's the same attitude, the same mentality. It doesn't come from Scripture. It comes from pagan thinking. And friends, we can be guilty of it also when we say, what have I done to deserve this? Without raising your hand, have you ever said that? But as we have learned, God brings trials to good people that sometimes involve suffering in order to reveal the nature of the heart and also to grow us in our faith. Now, there's an important principle here in all of this. And the principle is very simple. People are watching. They may not know who you are. They may not know where you're from or that you are a follower of Christ, but they're watching how you will respond to what kind of trial, suffering, or difficulty is before you. And the question is, will you cave in and somehow or in a small way turn against trusting God? Or will you press on by putting your faith in Christ? Let me ask you a question. How did Paul respond to being bitten by a viper? What does it say in verse 5? However, he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. I put it this way. He just shook the creature into the fire. He was at peace because he was resting in God's promise that he would go to Rome. A storm on the sea wasn't going to stop him. A bite from a venomous snake wasn't going to stop him. Paul understood the truth that the time of his death is appointed by God. Or to say it differently, that he was immortal until God's work was done in him and through him. Now that doesn't mean live a careless and carefree life. What it does mean is that you can face danger, suffering, fueled by God's promise. 
Friends, is that how you respond to life struggles? Are you anchored to the fact that you are safe in God's hands? Are you at peace in the storm knowing that God is in control? The native people watched Paul, expecting him to swell up and die, but he doesn't. He just keeps picking up sticks and putting them in the fire. And notice what it says. But when they waited, this is verse 6, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. I mean, how quickly pagan superstition people can, can change their minds to move from he's a murderer to he's a god. Well, neither of those things were true. Friends, there's a need and there's a joy and there's a grace of kindness that Paul experiences here. The ones who offer unusual kindness receive an unusual witness when they see what happens with Paul. They must have been thinking, who is this man being guarded by these soldiers who seems to be so unfazed by danger? Well, in this instance, the grace of unusual kindness opens the door, or we could say provides the opportunity for an unusual gospel witness. That's the first evidence of grace. The second evidence of grace we find in the next section here, the grace of hospitality. And I want you to notice, first of all, that kindness leads to hospitality. The kindness of the Maltese people now leads to this generous hospitality. For the Roman governor of the region, whose name is Publius, by the way, if you're having a boy, Here's one name you can choose. Everyone will love you for it. Um, well, anyway, he received, we're told, and entertained them. I mean, what? And notice verse 7. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Now, one of the questions we have to ask here is, is Luke saying that all the 270 people experienced this hospitality, or is he saying that only Paul and his companions, including the centurion and the soldiers, received that hospitality? I take it to mean that Publius, as governor, organized the hospitality of all 276 people on the island. That would be part of his responsibility and job. But that for three days he specifically entertained uh, the hospitality of those who were the leaders on the boat. That's typically how things would happen. And Paul, being under the care of the centurion, of course, Paul probably respected, even though he was a prisoner, is brought into that same mix. And so likely the centurion, the captain, the owner of the ship, Paul and his companions are all invited to Publius's home until arrangements could be made for the three-month stay on the island. Now, once again, we have an example here, friends, of pagan unbelievers responding to people who have gone through much suffering, opening their homes, and provided a needing, or providing a needed hospitality. Now, most of the places that you and I would travel, if we go someplace around the world, one of the things that we'll say is, wow, 
these people are really hospitable. You go into, I would say, most cultures and most contexts, and the people in those places will say, oh, we love where we live. We are a hospitable people. We want you to come over to our home. We want to share a meal with you. We want to get to know you. And these are pagans. These are not followers of Christ at all. But it is, it is their, I want to say, expected virtue. People are willing to be welcoming and giving of themselves, sharing a meal and building those friendships. Some of you know, I've shared this before, that my mother was born and raised in India. And when she was, she was the daughter of American missionaries, when she was 16, uh, this was during the Second World War, she got on a boat to travel to New York. And the boat went from Calcutta down through and, and went to um, Cape Town and, and to that port, and she got off the boat. When she got off the boat there, um, she was told that the army, the British army, had conscripted the boat so that soldiers could be taken to different places and, and you know, different resources, whatever they were, could be distributed where they needed to, to be. Of course, it's wartime, these things happen. And that she was to wait until another ship was available for them to come. And so they just needed to go find a place to stay. And so I heard this and I said, Mom, where did you stay? And you have to understand my mom. She said very, very nonchalantly, oh, the people were kind and just welcomed us into their homes. Two months later, she gets news. It's time to come and to get on this ship and sail to New York. Friends, that's hospitality. That's just welcoming people. In your, you don't know who these people are. I wonder, would that same hospitality take place in Oakland? Or San Francisco? Or, or Hayward? Or, or San Lorenzo? Or in one of our homes? Is that what you were thinking last year when Ukrainian families were looking for homes to stay in? Were you trying to figure it out? To say, you know what, what can we do? How can we help? In 2001, I was on my first trip to Russia to train pastors, and I experienced hospitality in a very uncomfortable way. I was with my friend Bill, and we were to stay with the pastor and his wife in one of those typical high-rise Russian buildings, right? They had an apartment, basically a two-bedroom apartment. And when we arrived, we were shown to our room, then given a large meal and we sat at this small rectangular table, one of those kind of kitchen tables that has benches that, that slides against the wall. You know what I'm talking about? And Galena, the pastor's wife, and her 80-year-old mother had worked hard to cook an incredible meal. And we had such a great time eating and getting to know each other. And there were lots of discussion uh, that was taking place uh, through the interpreter, of course. And then we went to bed. And of course, I had difficulty sleeping. It was that whole you know, jet lag thing, and you're kind of really upside down. And, and so I thought, well, I'm going to get up. And I knew they had some water bottles in the kitchen. And so I got up in the middle of the night, and I was making my way into the kitchen. And to my surprise, when I entered the kitchen, I found Grandma laying in the fetal position on the kitchen table bench. No mattress, just a hard piece of wood. And later I asked my interpreter, are we sleeping in Grandma's room? And she confirmed my fears. The 80-year-old babushka had given up her private room and comfortable bed 
to sleep on a kitchen bench. That's hospitality, friends. That's hospitality. Friends, for Paul and his family to find such, uh, sorry, for Paul and his friends to find such warm hospitality after having had to endure such trauma uh, with the storm and the open seas and the shipwreck, this was all a welcoming grace. Because Paul and the rest of the survivors needed shelter for three months. What were they going to do? Well, <laughs> the governor and the people rallied together and provided places for them to stay. It's a wonderful gift hospitality is. But I want you to notice also the hospitality leads to opportunity. Because the hospitality of Publius led Paul to learning about his father's sickness. Now you can imagine how this happens. You meet someone, how are you? This is your first time here. Oh, this is where you live. How long have you been here? Oh, do you have a family? Yes, I have a wife and I have so many children. Oh, what about your parents? Well, I have my, my mother's there, but my father, he's over there, but he's not doing well. Just natural conversations. These things happen. And Paul finds out that his father is sick. And we're given the symptoms listed here in this passage. In verse 8, fever and dysentery. Now, it's possible that he was struggling with cholera. Some doctors think that. But it's also possible that he had a condition that was unique to Malta that came from bacteria found in goat's milk. And the sickness sometimes would last two weeks or even up to a year. So Paul then goes in to see him, and we're told he prays over him, he puts his hands on him, and he heals him. Friends, this likely would not have taken place except that there was hospitality where conversations could be had, lives could be connected, information discussed, and the opportunity realized. And it's important for us to recognize that the exercise of hospitality is a door identifying people's needs and to helping them with them. So hospitality leads to opportunity. Opportunity now leads to gospel ministry. What happens in verse 9? When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. The news got out fast, and people from all over the island began coming who had diseases, and we're told they were cured by Paul. Now, it's good for us to remember that Paul never performed a miracle simply for humanitarian purposes. I know there are people out there that think that's true, that when Jesus healed, that was the end of the story. He just came to heal the suffering, to bring an end, you know, to the person's being demon-possessed or to, to, to heal the, the, the leg or to open the sight of the blind people. He didn't come just to do the physical stuff. He did that. It was part of his compassion. It was part of his love. But that was not the end game. That was the means to something. And the same is true for Paul. Healing the lame, the disease, opening the eyes of the blind, casting out demons are always done to authenticate both the message and the messenger. And this is the pattern we have with Jesus in the Gospels, and this is the pattern we have with the apostles in Acts. So when we read about Paul curing these diseases, we must also understand 
that he was taking the time during the course of those three months to proclaim the gospel. Therefore, the ministry of healing authenticated and legitimized Paul as worthy to be someone to listen to as well as the message that he was proclaiming. Friends, there is another principle here that we need to consider. It's very simple. But first, we saw that... um, Can't remember what the first one was. Remind me. Yeah, people are watching. Thank you. Here we have people are hurting. And you're not going to find out that they're hurting unless what? Unless you're interacting with them. Unless you take time to talk with them. Unless you take time to sit across a table and find out how are they doing? How's the family? What's going on? How do we know if people are hurting? Sometimes we expect them to come to us, and there's a truth to that. As a church, we want to know if you're going through some difficulty, but sometimes things are kept private because they're private issues, but people are hurting, and hospitality is a window to get in, to build that relationship so that it provides that opportunity for gospel ministry. I think I've shared this story before, and forgive me if I have, but I think it really rings true here. In 2006, the terrorist organization in Lebanon called Hezbollah attacked Israeli soldiers patrolling the north border, killing eight and kidnapping two. And Israel retaliated um, by giving precise attacks on Hezbollah positions along that Lebanese border. But the tactics of Hezbollah was then to, to go into villages and have just the, the regular people around them. And so the, the Israelis were less likely to, to, to shoot bombs in those directions, right? And the result of all that was thousands of refugees fleeing north to look for safety, many of them Muslim. Well, a church in Beirut owned a campsite out in the mountains, and they invited uh, refugees from a particular vis- uh, Muslim village to stay in their camp until it was safe to go home. They transported them, they housed them, they fed them for the next two months, all the while seeking to model the love of Christ with them. If they had an opportunity to talk about that, they were doing that too. And when the war ended and the people returned to their village, the imam of the mosque in that village invited the pastor and the people of the church for a special time of gratitude and thanksgiving. They put together a big, huge meal to celebrate what had been done for them by this church. And during that time, after they had the meal, the pastor was invited to speak. And I talked to this pastor, and he said for about 35 minutes, he opened the word of God, and he shared the gospel with them. Simple, clearly, in a way that Muslims would understand that he knows how to do that, he lives in that context. That would not have happened if if his church had not have thought about exercising hospitality, an unusual hospitality, right? His church's willingness to exercise or to extend hospitality to these Muslim refugees created an opportunity for gospel witness. So friends, not only is hospitality a wonderful and refreshing gift when we are on the receiving end, as Paul and Luke and Aristarchus are, 
but it's also an opportunity to build relationships and seek a gospel witness. And I wonder, we who live and attend American churches in our country have allowed the pendulum to swing so far over that we're only concerned about finding safety in what we might call the Christian bubble. Now, we're actually afraid to interact in this kind of way with, with those that are not believers. Or maybe our country's secularism that is focused on self has infiltrated the church so much that even God's people are more concerned with their own well-being and what they're doing to the neglect of others. We might ask ourselves the question, are we willing to look for ways to use hospitality as an opportunity to build relationships where gospel witness can take place? But the fourth thing there is ministry. Gospel ministry leads to gratitude. And notice what happens in verse 10. They also honored us greatly. See, Paul and his companions had had been on the island for three months, and during that time had cured people of their diseases, shared the gospel to the point that the people were thankful for their ministry among them. They honor, or, or the gratitude is evidence by the people providing whatever we needed, we're told here, for their journey to Rome. So as they're getting ready to get on the boat, the people have gathered together and brought provisions to make sure that Paul and his companions are taken care of. This is the gratitude. This is the honor. Now, tradition tells us that a church was established on Malta during those three months and that Publius was their first pastor. Well, we don't know if tradition is right, but it certainly is not beyond reason to believe that those three months were well used by Paul to plant the seed of the gospel on that island, and as a result of that, a church was planted. Whether Publius was the pastor or not, that's a whole other story. But this is what Paul had been doing as his pattern all throughout the Mediterranean, isn't it? God certainly moves in mysterious ways, doesn't he? The grace of of kindness, the grace of hospitality. Now I want you to notice the grace of fellowship. As the journey resumes, Paul and his companions will encounter the grace of fellowship. Let's first of all, let's notice the journey as it resumes here. After three months of kindness and hospitality and rest for the exhausting experience at sea, the winds now favored travel. It was probably around mid-February or so. And so Paul and his companions finally embark on their long journey from Malta to Rome. And the passengers probably included many, maybe if not most, of those who have been shipwrecked on the island, but certainly included Luke and Aristarchus and Julius, the centurion, the soldiers, and the other prisoners. And Luke adds that this ship came from Alexandria in Egypt, and that it was probably uh, one of the regular cargo ships transporting wheat and other grains to Rome, because that was a very precious commodity, and Rome certainly wanted those to come fast. And so these ships would come from, from Egypt all the way up through Malta, stop there, and then continue on. But he also mentions the ship having the twin gods of Castor and Pollux as its figurehead. I don't want to get into great detail here, but there's some irony that's taking place here. 
because these are gods that are put on the ship for protection on the sea. Let me ask you a question. Did the God of Israel, did Jesus Christ protect Paul and the people on the ship with the shipwreck? What's the answer? You better believe he did. But that's not how the world thinks. Because we think protection means that nothing happened to me, not even a scratch. And the irony here is these are not even gods. They're just figures. It's just kind of thrown in there. Our God is sovereign to accomplish his will even through storms and shipwrecks. So the ship sailed First to Syracuse, you can see it on the map, and stayed there for three days. From Syracuse, it journeyed to uh, Regium, which was a, an important harbor on the, the toe of Italy there. And it stayed there for one day, waiting for favorable weather. As apparently, they had to kind of do a circle um, uh, so they could, they could catch the wind. And from Regium, the ship journeyed 180 miles to Puteoli, right? I mean, we're in Italy now, so you've got to say it right, Puteoli, right? Which was the principal port of Italy. So here Paul, um, accompanied by his military guard, disembark. Now one of the things that struck me in reading this passage is how privileged we are today because of the freedom that we have to travel and rarely to be affected by the weather. Anyone ever been on a plane when it's raining? I think most of us have, right? We live in a place and been to places, but... Anyone been on a plane when there's snowing? Okay, this is California. I know you don't have too much opportunity for that. Um, I live in the Midwest. If you've ever flown through Chicago, well, don't do it, first of all, because you'll always be grounded. But snow doesn't mean anything. Rain doesn't mean anything. A hurricane, possibly. And it's just amazing how we just continue to travel, right? Yes, I know the grapevine can get snowed over sometimes. And if, if you go into Tahoe, it can be difficult because you have to put chains on. I had no idea what chains were when I came from the Midwest, and we drove in the snow all the time, so we were just having difficulty with that. But the point is, we have so much freedom to travel. But in Paul's day, travel literally shut down for three months of the year. Then they had to wait for the right winds. There's something fluid about that, I think, that we would all have difficulty planning in our, you know, in our phones, or we're going to leave on this day at this time. No, not in Paul's day. It's kind of like... Um, Somewhere this week, we're going to get the call, right? It's just so different. Now, I want you to notice, after the journey resumes, fellowship is encountered. So it's kind of like driving now to this point. Verse 14, there we found brothers. In Putioli, we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. I just... You got to put, you wrap your mind around this. That the, the church of Christ had been planted in the city, and it didn't involve Paul. Isn't that wonderful? It's not all up to one guy to do this, but God has always been working. It's one thing, friends, to receive hospitality from unbelievers, but it's another thing to be welcomed into the homes of fellow believers, especially when you're on a long journey and you've experienced so many hardships. True Christian hospitality is hospitality that includes Christian fellowship. We're living life and discussions about life 
that are rooted in Christ and his gospel and the, the talk of the spread of the kingdom of God, all of that is, is incorporated into what Christian fellowship is all about. I'm sure they asked Paul and Luke and Aristarchus many questions about their journey and about the ongoing growth of the church among the Gentile people. I'm sure that Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus, as they turned to different ones of them, asked them about how they came to know Christ and how their church was formed and, and what is the health of the church and what their struggles were. Now, you just imagine Paul coming into town and, and then for seven days they're invited to stay with them in their homes. What a blessing that is. And the implication here, friends, of our text is that Paul was respected, and because he was respected, he was given freedom, but he always had to be chained to a Roman soldier. So I just want you to think through this. That means that whenever Paul had a gospel conversation with a fellow believer, a soldier was always listening in. They were hearing Christ's ministry to the Gentiles. They were hearing personal testimonies of, of changed lives. So even Paul's fellowship was an opportunity for gospel witness. But then it says we came to Rome. Verse 14. And what's interesting is in verse 16, Luke says, and when we came into Rome. Well, what's going on here? Why is he saying it twice? That doesn't make much sense. Seems to be a contradiction, someone might say. When did they actually come to Rome? In verse 14 or verse 16? And so we came to Rome. Let me explain it this way. When you take an international flight from London, Frankfurt, or wherever it might be, into San Francisco International Airport, you land in San Francisco, but you're not actually in San Francisco. You're 13 miles away from San Francisco. You are somewhere in the between Millbrae and, and San Bruno, right? You're at the airport for San Francisco. So in a similar way, when Paul and his companions arrive at Puteoli, they are arriving in the port city that services Rome. And that day, when you went by boat to Rome, you went into this port. This is where you got off. This was Rome's port. And this time, Puteoli was a magnificent, welcoming harbor, had a magnificent city with all sorts of temples and amphitheaters and baths and markets and shops. It was a city that welcomed people to Rome. This is where you would come. But the truth of the matter was, Rome was another 150 miles northwest of Puteoli. It's one of those things that I, still boggles my mind, why they call them the San Francisco Premium Outlets. If that isn't deception, friends, I don't know what is. Paul then had another five-day journey on foot. So you can imagine that the seven days of fellowship were also there to provide seven days of preparation for that five-day journey to Rome. Now, what happens when Paul and his traveling companions begin their journey on foot to the city of Rome? <laughs> well, they encounter believers from Rome who had traveled down the Appian Way to the city 
uh, from the city to the Forum of Appius. It's a market town on the Appian Way, about, about 40 miles southeast of Rome. It's about a day and a half's journey on foot. And presumably, when they met Paul, Paul continued on the journey, and they continued with him. And then, a little further along, uh, as they continued, more believers met them at three taverns, a station on the Appian Way about 30 miles from Rome. That's about one long day's journey from Rome. And again, you can you know, assume that they continued the journey then with Paul. Now, we can only imagine that when Paul arrived in Puteoli, that the believers there sent word to Rome, the apostle Paul is coming. And so these believers, as they heard it, began now walking toward Paul because they wanted to meet him. Now, we're not told who it was that came to meet him. But turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 16. Romans, this book is written before these events. Paul already knew that there were believers in Rome. But in Romans 16, we have this catalog of people that Paul sends greetings to. And you just wonder if there was a few of them that were part of this entourage that came down to see him. Phoebe, Prissa and Aquila, Epionetus, Mary, Andronicus and Julia, and Pleatus, Urbanus, Stachus, Apellus, the family of Aristobulus, Herodian, the family of Narcissus, Tryphena and Tryphosa must be sisters, Persis, Rufus and his mother, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, Philologus, Julia, Neurus, and Olympus. That's quite a catalog of people, isn't it? And you can just imagine the friends of Paul bringing other people that don't know Paul, saying, the Apostle Paul, who has been writing to our church, encouraging us, strengthening us, uh, and giving <coughs> direction for us, he's coming to Rome. Let's go out and meet him. And all the people here traveled excitedly to meet him and return with him. I'm sure they were rejoicing. I'm sure there was a lot of affection. I'm sure that there was a lot of singing going on as they went on the way. And I'm sure they were all telling stories. And how does Paul respond to the Christian fellowship he receives? On seeing them, we're told, Paul thanked God and took courage. He was grateful, and he was greatly encouraged. Friends, don't underestimate the strength and encouragement that results from true Christian fellowship with friends you know who are living in other towns and cities in the U.S. who are also believers. But also don't underestimate the refreshment that comes from true Christian fellowship with people at a church in another city or around the world that you're attending for the first time. Friends, Christian fellowship is a grace that we don't deserve but it's a, it's a grace that we only understand. And it's a refreshment to our soul 
to be with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they be in Ukraine or Bolivia, India, Austria, or the West Bank. If you've ever been out of the country and you've walked into a church, like-minded church of people you've never met before, you walk into the family of God. You're already connected through the gospel. I mean, and, and within five minutes, you can be having solid, encouraging Christian fellowship together. This is a grace that God gives his church. Luke, however, wakes us up with the stark reality. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stand by himself and with the soldier who guarded him. So when they came to Rome, that was in Butteoli, but now they're coming into the city of Rome. They were coming into the greater context of Rome, but now they're coming into the city. Luke quickly brings us back to reality, doesn't that although Paul is Christ's apostle to the Gentiles, that he's still an innocent prisoner of Rome who will have to stand before Caesar. Christ promised that he would make it to Rome. He's in Rome. And yet, he's still a prisoner. Friend, let's bring this all to a close. I began the sermon with the following statement. The grace of God is always at work for us as he sovereignly fulfills his promise to us. So how is the grace of God at work for us? Let me just give you two answers here. First, we receive grace from others. How have you experienced kindness and hospitality or true Christian fellowship while you have been going through one of life's storms? Have you experienced that? Probably you have. Grace may come at us in all sorts of different ways. Finances, childcare, babysitting, the use of a vehicle, shared wisdom because it's an area that you don't understand or don't know about, the gift of people's skill that are able to do things that you have no ability to do, encouraging words, and so on. Are you willing to be the recipient of God's grace to you through others? Some people struggle with pride here, don't they? And they say things like, I don't need your charity. Friends, when, when you have brothers and sisters that are saying, look, I want to help you. I have a resource that can benefit you. Be thankful. Don't be full of pride. Be thankful. Welcome it. Rejoice in it. They are exercising hospitality, kindness, and demonstrating their Christian fellowship toward you. Secondly, we extend grace to others. This is the other way that the grace of God is at work for us. We are ministers of grace. Are you one that allows God to freely extend his grace through you to others? Your time, your resources, your knowledge, your skill? The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 tells us that if we're truly believers, then not only are we the recipients of God's grace, verse 7, but we're also the ministers of God's grace, verse 29. It's a wonderful reality, friends. The grace of God is always at work for us as he sovereignly fulfills his promises to us. We always have the grace of God 
at work in our lives. See it. Recognize it. Be the agent of it in other people's lives and do it all for the glory of God. Lord, help us today. Help us to embrace the things that the Apostle Paul encountered here. The shocking things, the kindness that he received and, and how that even opened a door for a gospel witness. The hospitality that he received and how that opened a door again for an opportunity that led to gospel witness. And how even true Christian fellowship that he was experiencing as he's reunited or united with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ was an opportunity for gospel ministry. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you extend to us. We know that there's, the, there's the, the big salvific kind of grace, Lord, that you extend, and through that, Lord, you bring us salvation. But there's grace that comes to us post-salvation, that comes through people that you've chosen. And sometimes it comes through those who do not know you because the things that they're doing are written on their heart. And sometimes, Lord, it comes through your people. And help us, Lord, to see your hand at work in the midst of the trial, in the midst of the suffering, also breathing grace into our lives to help us focus, to help us endure, to help us see your hand at work, and to help us see that you have a purpose beyond us, even through what we're going through. Help us, Lord, now as we consider the struggles or the things that we may go through as the means by which you're going to demonstrate to us your grace in various forms. We ask this now in your precious name. Amen.